Welcome to the 255th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Anna Solomon, author of The Little Bride and Leaving Lucy Pear. Just a note, this interview was originally recorded when Leaving Lucy Pear was published. Stay tuned for my interview with Anna Solomon. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Anna Solomon, author of Leaving Lucy Pear. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, can you read two or three pages from your new novel, Leaving Lucy Pear? Sure. Here's the beginning. This is part one, first chapters in 1917. If they were coming, this was the night. The pears had stayed yellow and hard for so long that Bee had started to despair, but they were finally ready to pick. The moon was a quarter full. The afternoon's wind had gone limp. Midnight came and went. Bee counted to 500 for extra measure, silently, so she wouldn't wake the nurse. Then she took up the infant from its bassinet, wrapped it in her Aunt Vera's Angora shawl, and crept down the cellar stairs in her bare feet. The stairs to the cellar were granite and cold, The original wooden ones had burned with the original wooden house in 1873. B did not know about the fire, but she could smell it, because the cellar was the one part of the house that hadn't needed rebuilding and its walls retained the flavor of ash. She moved toward the bulkhead door as fast as she could, feeling along the wall with her free hand, careful not to bump the handles of shovels and hose, though the shovels and hose had been through far worse. They had witnessed flood and fire, They had been variously cared for and abused by generations of gardeners, had been used to plant tulips and to dig graves. They had even, once upon a time, been in the presence of another unwed mother and her infant. Knowing this might have put Bee's own suffering in perspective, but she did not know, and she had not been taught perspective. She was 18, the daughter of ascendant Boston Jews who had sent her away to Eastern Point in a black curtained limousine, the day she started to show. The bulkhead door was heavier than she expected, its diagonal slope demanding that it be lifted as much as pushed. She'd unlocked it from the outside before going to bed, but she hadn't tested its weight, and now the thing didn't budge. She pressed harder. The cellar was her only way out. She had tested the doors on the first floor, and everyone either shrieked or squeaked or groaned. She pushed again. If she put the baby down, it would cry. Bees started to pant with panic. The cellar roof seemed to be dropping, the walls squeezing. She climbed the bulkhead steps until she was bent nearly in two. The infant squeezed into the small space between her thighs and chest and tried to open the door with her back. Her legs shook. Sweat sprang at her neck. She was still soft and weak from the birth two weeks before. Her right eye bloodshot, though she had no memory of pushing, no memory of any of it, nothing, until a baby was being handed to her, clean and silent, like a doll her mother had bought. She was lucky, Bee understood. Aunt Vera had hired a doctor who had studied in Germany with the father of twilight sleep. There had been morphine. There had been scopolamine. These, according to Aunt Vera, would do more to liberate women than the vote. Bee understood that she was supposed to understand herself to be lucky. She understood that she must have pushed and that she should be glad not to remember. She pushed now, using her neck, her shoulders, every muscle in her body. At last, the door gave an inch, then two then lightened so quickly B was following it. She had to scramble to catch up before it slammed on the ground outside. She looked behind her, above, 
The hinge had given a sharp cry. She went stiff, waiting for another sound. The nurse's heavy footsteps, her heavy call. Beatrice? She waited until her breath came and quieted her heart. Then she stepped out into the night. I'll stop there. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about leaving Lucy Pear yet, how would you describe your new novel? Um, it's a book about two women, one of whom abandons her baby, which is the scene that I'm reading from now that you were hearing um, in 1917, and the other who raises that baby. And um, we meet her, we meet them both again in 1927, which is when most the, the entire book, except for this first chapter, takes place. And the baby herself is then by then 10 years old. Her name is Lucy Pear. Um, and it's really a book about how this both abandonment and raising of another person's child has shaped both of these women's lives and then the lives of, an, of a kind of larger community of characters who are also um, featured in the book and whose points of view we, we see. And the way in which this one summer in 1927, they are brought back together. So do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing Leaving Lucy Pear? Yeah, there were sort of two things. One was a I came across in this book of history about Cape Ann, which is where the book takes place and where, where I grew up, Cape Ann, Massachusetts. It's sort of north of Boston. You could call it the other Cape. It's the north, you know, it's a much smaller Cape than Cape Cod, but um it's north up there. And I was reading this this book of history and came across this anecdote about this woman this wealthy Bostonian who had um, been summering in Gloucester, that Gloucester is on Cape Ann, summering in Gloucester and suffering from a, quote, nervous disorder. Um, and it had been, she'd been, the nervous disorder was being aggravated by this whistle buoy, which had been put offshore. These whistle buoys were, like most buoys, you know, they meant to protect sailors and fishermen from crashing into shore in the night or in fog. And she had asked, of course, she had these connections with the Navy, and she'd asked them if they could have the whistle buoy taken out, and they did. Um, and then the, this thing went on to report that the following summer, she was feeling much better. Her nervous disorder had, had um, she'd gotten married and wasn't having this nervous disorder anymore, and had said that the whistle buoy could be put back in the water. Um, and, you know, a lot compelled me about this kind of about what I read there, you know, the, the nervous disorder itself, the fact that the marriage seemed to have cured it. Um, and then really this whistle buoy and the question on a plot level as a novelist of, you know, what would have happened if during the time the whistle buoy was out, there had been a consequence, you know, one that this woman would then have been responsible for. So that sort of got my wheels turning and, and it kind of met up somehow with this mystery that I'd had been in my in my family since I was a kid. We we did have these pear trees near our house that every year at the same time, right around right when they were about to be ripe, all the pears would disappear one night. Um, and there was this that mystery had kind of stayed with me and this question of who was taking them. And so that's that came together. I can't explain exactly how with the <laughs> with the question of the whistle buoy and and um, and became this book. Great. Well, was there something about the era of history, prohibition years, that appealed to you for the setting of Leaving Lucy Pear? Um, you know, it's funny. I think that I was initially drawn in a kind of naive way to the 1920s, as a lot of people are, as a sort of with the stereotypical idea of the, the glamorous, roaring 20s with, you know, the parties and the flappers and the um, 
amazing music and the, and art and kind of the the way that people were starting to kind of break outside of certain Victorian social mores. Um, and but then I sort of I I learned uh, through my research and as I as I wrote and I read and I you know as I went um, so much of sort of the darker the underside of the twenties and the way in which it was it was a decade of incredible division and extreme politics in the United States. You know, post-World War I, there was this kind of um, anti-communist hysteria going on, this real anti-immigrant vein running through the country, um, a lot of nativist um, rhetoric, the, the, the membership in the Ku Klux Klan that decade skyrocketed. I mean, it was a really, there was a lot of very um, disturbing and, and hateful things going on in the country, and that both, you know, fit with the story I was trying to tell because it is one of, there's a lot of class division. You know, the woman who leaves the baby is a wealthy Jewish socialite and the woman who raises the baby is a poor Irish Catholic mother of nine. Um, and then there's also obviously division on an, on an ethnic level and a racial level. I mean, both, both of them actually are ethnic in the sense of, and, and, but, but one has sort of, um, the Jews in the story have at least attempted to assimilate to the point of kind of, erasing themselves as Jews. And as you, you see in the book that it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, but all of that, you know, I think that the decade served the politics of the decade wound up really, um, fitting the book in that way. Um, you know, and, and then as I kind of went further and I mean, what we're, what's happening right now during this election cycle, is not, <laughs> something, not something that was actually going on when the book, um, when I was writing the book, although even then I start, I was sort of seeing a lot of resonances with our, with our politics today, but now, um, it couldn't really feel, feel more resonant. Sure. So how much research did you do prior to writing the novel? Um, I tend not to research very much before I start to write, but I did a ton of research as I wrote and that that's usually how I work. So I allow the sort of, I allow the story to guide the research rather than the other way around, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. But I did, you know, do a tremendous amount of research, both in the traditional kind of looking at um, history texts and also, a lot, you know, I find primary source documents to be incredibly helpful um, newspapers, advertisements, all of that. Um, and the thing I really love most is talking to people who know, who either lived through, you know, I spoke with um, a, um, a guy who had the grandson of a bootlegger in Gloucester who remembered seeing the um, bottles being hidden in the caves in the quarry walls. And I spoke with another, a very old woman who since has passed away about um, her memories of sort of as being a kid barefoot and walking where the gra all the granite shavings were from the quarries and what that felt like on her feet. Um, so, and that kind of research I, I really love the most because both because it gives me the kind of sensory material that I think really makes for excellent fiction. And, and also because it, for me, it's, it's just the most fun. Sure. So what was your writing journey prior to writing your debut novel, The Little Bride? Um, I had mostly written short stories and published short stories. Um, although, you know, I guess it goes back further than that. And I don't know if you're interested, you know, beyond that. Yes, but, yes, I am. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I didn't really know. I had always been writing since I was a kid in one form or another. And, you know, but I never, I didn't have, as I know a lot of people do, a sense of like, well, I'm going to be a writer or definitely not, you know, I will be a novelist. I, I just kind of, it was something that I always kept doing. And I think, um, when I was young in high school and college, 
on a creative level, most of what I did was, was poetry. Um, and I really didn't start writing what I thought of as, you know, fiction until I graduated from college. And I had this real urge, um, to try my hand at it. And I started taking, um, my very first fiction workshop. I took it at Grub Street Writers in Boston, which is a really wonderful writing school. And that was their first year in existence. Um, and now they've really expanded. But, um, but I also at that time after college began working as a radio journalist and I worked, I did, I worked in radio for five or six years, um, which was its own really specialized and kind of, um, I just think amazing, amazing type of writing that demands something very different than, than really anything else, um, to write for a, an audience that's just hearing you. Um, here we are on a podcast. Um, <laughs> And so I really, you know, I learned a lot from that about both um, about brevity and about working on a deadline and just kind of getting it out. And also, I think that gave me gave me a lot of material on a story level, too. I mean, I was traveling all around the country and um, talking with people about I was covering environmental policy and politics in particular. Um, so that was really amazing. And then and then I decided, you know, I was at a point in my life where I I felt like I was still unattached enough that I could go get an MFA. And so I decided that if I could get funding, I would do it. And I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop and I had a really amazing experience out there, which really helped me kind of solidify my, um, kind of declare myself, I guess, as a writer. Um, and at that, while I was there, I started publishing my short stories and, um, you know, for a long time, short stories were really what I was writing and, and working to, to master in a way. I can't say that I have, and I don't know that I ever, I, I still think of it as the hardest form. <laughs> um, but I've published a lot of them and I feel good about a bunch of them, but I still feel when I sit down to write a short story, like I, like I'm starting all over at the beginning. Um, and I always also felt in my short stories, you know, the, the strain, I was always kind of fitting novels into them. <laughs> so I think that the shift to novel writing for me was a very, felt like a very natural one, which isn't to say it was easy, but it, but it did feel natural. Sure. And so are you still writing short stories? You know, I am, but very occasionally and, and with a lot of agony. <laughs> and so I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I have, you know, sort of an idea or two at a time. And then when I come to a breaking point in, in the novel where either I've given a draft to somebody or, you know, I just have a point, a place where I have some space, I, I make a go of it. Um, and I was kind of working pretty hard at one this last winter for a while and then kind of had to step away from it again. Um, I, I hadn't, I haven't figured it out yet. So I do, I do intend to keep writing them. I think it's just going to be a slower, slower pace. <laughs> so are you working on another novel now? I have begun another novel, um, which I, it's nascent enough that I can't talk much about it. Sure, sure. To say that it's, um, involves the book of Esther that, um, and, and it's writing in ancient Persia. Um, and also, 1970s feminism, <laughs> um, and then also contemporary Brooklyn motherhood. So, great. How all of those things will come together, we will see. <laughs> I'm excited. That would, that, would, that would be interesting. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be exciting. So, so what advice would you have for aspiring writers who might be listening and are interested in writing their own novels or short stories? Oh wow. Um, <laughs> I think. Let's see, to keep, to put the writing first, I think would be my first piece of advice. Um, and when I say that, what I mean is that I think 
and I, this is different than when I started writing. It's very different. There are so many outlets now for publishing one's work that I think it can be very easy to kind of follow an impulse of just kind of like, well, I might as well publish it since I can. Um, and most of the time, that's just not true. <laughs> um, and most people, you know, I, I forget exactly the number of pages it was that Grace Paley said one should write before you even began to sort of even consider publishing any of it. But, you know, I think that I think that it, it just takes an enormous amount of practice if you want to do it seriously. And um, and I think along with that, importantly, because it's not like I would advise anyone just go into a hole and be sort of by themselves writing for years and years before they decide to make, you know, to take any of it out in the world is that to find readers and to find a community, because I think that's, you know, what keeps us all going and what makes it worth it. Um, and so um, I think, you know, taking a workshop, if you can, or going to a conference, or just even finding a writing group in your community that of people who are, they don't necessarily need to be writing the same thing as you at all in terms of genre, but people whose work you respect and who's, um, you know, again, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to like it, but that you get what they're doing and want to offer them help. And because that, that's how you build um, experience and the kind of confidence that, you know, to become sort of your own editor so that by the time you're ready to go out and publish, you, you have more of a sense of where you're at with the project and you have readers that you can count on to help you get there. When, when you sit down to write, are there ever days that you need to do something to jumpstart the writing process for yourself? Most of the time, I'm I'm kind of good to go if I'm in the middle of a project because I I tend to try to stop the day before in a place where I know what I'm going to do the next day. Um, you know, this is not uncommon. The idea of sort of even stopping in the middle of a sentence or stopping you know, certainly in the middle, in the middle of something so that you're not sitting down the next day and saying, okay, I have no idea what to do here. Um, but when I do get stuck, I think that the most thing that's most helpful for me, which sounds counterintuitive is this little post-it that I have, which, which says you will fail (laughs) Um, (laughs) because it just reminds me that, you know, for instance, you know, like I just looked at, I've been, I've been doing this little narrative, this Instagram narrative of, of my writing process for leaving Lucy pair. You know, I wrote, you know, tens of drafts of this novel. And, and that's even after it was sort of like in pretty good shape. And so, um, to remind myself of how little I'm right, how little of what I'm writing is actually going to survive helps me just get on with it, you know, because it's not going to, it's not going to write itself and I will fail anyway. So I might as well just do it. (laughs) (laughs) So, are there books and authors that inspire your own writing or books that you've read in the last year or two that really impressed you? Huh. Um, I just finished this really beautiful book by Dominic Smith called The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos, which I think came out earlier this year, maybe in the spring, um, and is a beautiful book about um, sort of a lost painting and the woman who then a woman who forged the painting later and then kind of her, the comeuppance later. I mean, I'm not describing it very well, but it was a a beautiful um, book that leapt between time periods in a serious way and um, managed to kind of keep the thread together. And I, I, it's actually, it's interesting. I guess the other book that comes to mind, even though there, there are many others that I could, that I could use in this answer, but just while I'm on the, the time leaping for, um, kind of theme is, is the hours, which again is not a new book as you know, but, um, 
I've, I've returned to that um, in, in large part because of the novel that I'm writing on now, writing now. And it's another book that does that, you know, makes those jumps between time, specifically three time periods, and manages to um, do it in a way that feels seamless. Um, and as, I, as I'm kind of studying it now, whereas I read it, you know, whenever it came, first came out, um, I'm really starting to see, you know, even, even more, I'm, I'm, I'm even more impressed by the brilliance with which Cunningham um, wove those pieces together. Sure. So where can people find you online if they're, if they're interested in learning more about you and your novel, Leaving Lucy Pear? Oh, yeah. I'm at, my website is just my name, www.annasolomon.com. All my, my Solomon is spelled with all O's. <laughs> um, that's really the only place one could get confused. And I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram um, and um, having fun out there, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Anna Solomon, author of the new novel, Leaving Lucy Pear. The novel is available in bookstores now or as an ebook, so go grab a copy. And Anna, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much. This was fun. Great. So this will go up in a few days. Um, I will send you uh, an email or send an email to your publicist and let them know. Oh, great. Thank okay. you so much. Great. Um, I thanks hope I was semi-articulate. <laughs> oh, yeah, you were. You were. Absolutely. Okay. That was okay. fun. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye-bye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.